Hello everyone and welcome to a special episode of At War, the podcast by the Conflict Law Center that we're doing as part of our Israel and Palestine Symposium. Today we are very happy to have with us Dr. Emma Siddiqui, who is a novelist and academic who completed his PhD from the University of Oxford on Pakistan's relationship with Afghanistan and has taught courses on revolutionary war and counterinsurgency as well as the Israel and Palestine conflict at LUMS and the Lahore School of Economics. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So to start off with, one of the main issues um, that we have with the mainstream narrative on this is that the clock really for them started on October 7th. And for us, the clock didn't start on October 7th. So I actually just wanted to ask you, where do you think that the clock started? Are we going to go back to the Balfour Declaration, the Nakba or the 1967 war? Where do you see this conflict as being rooted in? Um, so I would actually go back further. I mean, I would, yeah. I would go back to the history of uh, anti-Jewish discrimination in Europe, which is where I think this conflict really uh, had its origins. Um, uh, an anti-Jewish discrimination which started off more on a religious basis and then by the 18th, 19th century had shifted to uh, more of a racial basis. And that's where you had the term anti-Semitism uh, being coined. Uh, and the specific character of that uh, anti-Jewish discrimination r- resulted in a character, an emergent character of the Zionist movement. Mm. Um, it gave it a certain structural form, which we are being se- seen on taken, I would argue, to a logical extreme uh, today. And so, one of the key factors of that discrimination uh, against Jews was the question of land. So, in many areas, many different uh, times and parts uh, of Europe. Jews were, uh, were forbidden from owning land mm. or were, were stuck in small ghettos or in, uh, in Eastern Europe, in the, in the Russian Empire, in shtetls, uh, villages, where th- those were the only places where they were allowed to own land. And so in many places across Europe, Jews lived, uh, lived an itinerant existence. There was a Jewish diaspora uh, without uh, strong ties to the land. And that absence of ties to the land was something which uh, as different nations in Europe began to emerge and claim their rights to nationhood, that was something that intellectuals within the Jewish community found uh, to be extremely lacking. And that was something that they sought to rectify. And so the Zionist movement, um, as it emerged, uh, was a combination of uh, Jews in Western Europe, uh, people like Theodor Herzl, who was the founder, um, and who gave the idea and gave birth to the idea of the Jew, of forming a Jewish state, uh, as well as Jews that were escaping uh, discrimination, persecution in the uh, Russian Empire, mm-hmm. uh, and, and these and, and the latter were the people who actually went and settled um, Palestine and provided the actual manpower for settling the land, and the the fact that Jewish communities did not have a single land where they had a majority resulted in, in an approach where, where the focus on trying to obtain the land by one means or another became very central to the Zionist movement. So during the Ottoman Empire, uh, you know, the Jewish National Fund was set up um, by the World Zionist Organization for the purpose of purchasing land in Palestine. Um, later, uh, during the British Mandate, uh, there, there, was, there was more of an effort to obtain land uh, by a political means. But that became a central focus of the Zionist movement altogether. And 
Now, I remember that while the Zionist movement was effectively a movement for a dispossessed and discriminated people and uh, for their right to national self-determination, it also was a movement of its times. And many of its luminaries, many of its um, key intellectuals grew up in Western Europe in a colonial period, in a period where it was seen as perfectly normal to go and stake out claims to certain parcels uh, of land across the globe. Um, so, the, so, third, uh, so Theodor Herzl explicitly saw the Zionist movement as being a colonial, a settler colonial movement. Mm. And he, um, you know, he's, he's written a lot about that, but it, you know, famously he talked about it being as an outpost of civilization against barbarism. Uh, and that was how he would try to sell it to different uh, uh, colonial powers. He tried mm. to convince, uh, you know, at different times. So Herzl was not obsessed with Palestine necessarily as being the land, but right. he thought it was, thought it was you know, the one that, would, uh, most, uh, that most Jews would be interested in mm. uh, emigrating to. Um, and because of the nature of needing to set up a Jewish majority where there was none before, the, the characteristic of the Zionist movement emerged as being as, uh, not, a, not a colonial movement like the French in Algeria or the British in India, where you have colonies which are exploiting native labor. Uh, the Zionist movement needed to establish a majority for itself. It needed to have a relationship with the land directly. And so the focus there was not on exploiting native labor, but on expelling native labor. Right, right. And that process started as early as, uh, as the first settlers. I mean, uh, and you know, the Zionist slogan uh, attributed to Israel Zangville at the time was uh, you know, a land without a pe people for a people without a land. In reality, the Zionist leaders didn't really knew that there was a native population. Right. As early as 1895, Herzl is writing in his diaries about the need to discreetly spirit the penniless population of Palestine mm -hmm. across the border and find them jobs elsewhere. Okay, and so, this is one of the most frustrating things um, about what Dershowitz alleges. He's like, there was nobody there. There right. were just stray Bedouin populations, and you know, then we moved in, and there was nobody else. And and I think that's one of one of the things really that Zionists have pushed onto. Um, you know, on the narrative that they right. push onto, onto Israelis and those moving there. It's very much the founding ethos. Yeah. It's very similar to uh, American uh, myths about, mm -hmm. about uh, pioneering, settling in, in the New World. Yeah. You know, the, the, so these whole myths, these imageries of, of this land was empty and we uh, transformed the deserts mm -hmm. and we transformed uh, and we you know, built settlements and, and so on. Um, and that, you know, and we remember how that process was done in America was through the genocide of the Native American people. Yeah. Um, so this this particular type of uh, settler colonialism lends itself ultimately to a politics of ethnic cleansing. And mm -hmm. and initially, um, you know, and there have been various phases through which uh, Israel and pre before Israel, the Zionist movement have gone in this process. Um, so as I said, you know, as early as 1895, Herzl saw this possibility. David Ben-Gurion has also talked about it. Uh, this is because you euphemistically in Zionist thought, thought this was called transfer. Uh, so the idea of transferring the native population. So uh, David Ben-Gurion writes about it uh, in his diaries, in, in meetings of the, of, uh, the Zionist leadership. Uh, it's, it's, all, it's all documented. It's all there. Um, and what happened in 1948 during the war uh, was that uh, partly because of the war itself, uh, war naturally lends itself to refugee exodus, but partly also because of deliberate uh, policies mm -hmm. undertaken by uh, Zionist military units, um, in including in certain cases massacres such as at Tantura mm -hmm. uh, and in other villages as well, 
much of the uh, native uh, Palestinian Arab population fled. Uh, and most of those, uh, and you know, and Gaza, may, uh, uh, the population of Gaza is mostly refugees from the 1948. Yeah, war. and it's one of the things that people keep on saying: don't call them Gazans; they're not mm -hmm. from there. Right. Um, you know, they've been forced to relocate to Gaza from different parts of Palestine. Um, so calling them Gazans as if they're from that land is a misnomer. Right. And so then the idea then is, um, you know, what happened? Uh, what happened in 1948? It was later referred to by uh, director of the Jewish National Fund, Joseph Weitz, as two miracles. So mm -hmm. he said, in, uh, and he talks about this after 1967. So he said in 1948, uh, there were two miracles. First, we, we gained the land, uh, and the native population f fled. Mm -hmm. By 1967, unfortunately, there was only one miracle. We gained the land, yeah. but the population stayed. Mm -hmm. And so Israel, in a sense, reproduced its own uh, fundamental Dilemma and the fundamental dilemma that Israel has had from the beginning is this notion of the demographic threat that we need to have a Jewish majority in the land. In 1948, that dilemma was solved. Right. The remaining Palestinian Arab population in Israel was only 12%. If Israel had accepted mm -hmm. the Palestinians at that point, um, you know, it, it, it wouldn't have had to deal with this problem again. But, mm -hmm. but 19, the 1948 dispensation had left key parts of the land of uh, Palestine that, is, that Israel wanted out of its hands, including the holy sites in East Jerusalem. Yeah. Um, there were areas along the borders which were deemed very insecure, and at that point, of course, no Arab state had recognized Israel, so there was this concern that you need to have defensible borders. Mm. So Israel was really interested in having more uh, of the land. Uh, and so the War of 1967, it actually gains uh, control of 78% of yeah. the land of yeah. historic uh, Palestine, uh, the whole of the land of historic Palestine, before that it was only 78%. Mm. And, uh, but then the population stays. So now you have to find out a way to still ensure that Jewish majority. Um, so as I said, you know, ethnic cleansing and genocide is a very extreme uh, outcome of yeah. this yeah. Uh, approach. And that's not obviously the one that they were focused on and trying. Um, in 1948, they felt secure enough to uh, because, again, there was only a 12% population, they felt secure enough to eventually, over two, three decades, grant everyone their citizenship. Mm. Uh, so all Palestinian Arabs who remained in Israel at that point were granted citizenship eventually. But uh, with the 1967 population, that was out of the question, because right. then you would have a population which was about equal to the population of Jews in Israel. Okay, in 1967. Yeah, so at that point, then they shift to a policy of uh, on the one hand, um, denying political rights to Palestinians, mm -hmm. uh, so no citizenship, no uh, right to vote. Uh, on the other hand, uh, starting on the settlement of the West Bank and Gaza, which initially is uh, proposed according to the, what is called the Alon Plan for Cabinet Minister Yigal Alon, uh, and it was adopted by the oral law. Um, the Alon Plan envisaged settling parts of the West Bank and Gaza focusing on uh, areas which are either high security or which had a, a uh, maximum amount of territory with the minimum Arab population. So skirt around the Arab population centers and try to get uh, as much of the land as possible. Uh, and so that was the, the policy that was adopted uh, from that point on, uh, which ultimately led to what um, uh, multiple human rights organizations have uh, including Amnesty International, have now concluded as a policy of uh, de facto apartheid. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and in many cases, de jure, because there are certain laws, such as the law of return, which uh, actively discriminate against. Yeah, uh, now the basic law of 2018 right. as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, um, 
so eventually, because of dealing with this Palestinian population, uh, the, is uh, the Zionist movement ended up taking on this sort of apartheid form. But that wasn't its natural original characteristic. The original characteristic was to have, you know, have a state with a majority of Jews, which is relying on Jewish labor rather than which is relying on okay. Palestinian Arab okay. labor. So, so that, you that it wasn't. Uh, what so it, uh, it it was it was what emerged uh, mm -hmm. as a dynamic of having to deal with this population, which you couldn't get rid of. Ah, okay. Uh, okay. The original impulse of the Zionist movement was to have primarily a Jewish state, full of mm -hmm. uh, primarily Jews. Yeah. But uh, but now when you're stuck in this situation, you sort of have this tangent developing right. of an apartheid state. Mm -hmm. And that's something which which is, is which is a concern even you know, of Israeli, like former Prime Minister Ehud Olmert warned that you know, one of the reasons that he wanted, was in favor of a two-state solution was because uh, if the Palestinians shifted from a two-state to asking for civil rights in a unified state, yeah. and that would either result in what he called he said it would either result in an apartheid state or it would result mm -hmm. uh, in the loss of the Jewish majority, neither of which he wanted, and that's so. That, that, I would say, was, was a shift away from the original structural impetus of the Zionist movement. Okay. Um, and that's to say how the situation in the West Bank has mm -hmm. developed. But in Gaza, since 2005, yeah. uh, when Ariel Sharon uh, decided to, uh, again, withdraw from Gaza, uh, in, uh, it was very much in accordance with the spirit of this uh, a long time originally, which was maximum territory, minimum Arab population. Gaza was a very concentrated population of Palestinians over a mere 2% of the land. Mm -hmm. So you get out of there. But while getting out of there, you maintain control over borders, you maintain control over the yeah. coastline, you maintain control over water, electricity, all supplies, so you can continue to push these levers whenever yeah. you need to. And, and it's really interesting for me uh, when we look at it. It was uh, an attempt after 2005 to make it a burden-free occupation and also an occupation by remote control, but even the Human Rights Watch and the Amnesty reports cite the Palestinian Authority as being complicit and yeah. contributing to the apartheid system um, that Israel is trying to purport. And I thought that was a very, that's very interesting because it's difficult to look at the Palestinian factions and, and understand what role they have as almost contractors of, yeah, the, yeah. of Israel. Yeah, and, and that's very much been the case uh, more recently with the uh, in the you know, in the last decade or two after after Yasser Arafat's death with um, with the uh, uh, with the Palestinian Authority uh, um, you know, again from uh, coming from Pakistan uh, this is sort of divide and rule uh, yeah, yeah. policy that Israel has uh, followed is is you know, is very standard for uh, for colonial powers it's mm -hmm. um, and. I mean, that, so that's something that they, they that they tried to follow is, you know, is to try to split the Palestinian national movement. Before that, uh, its antecedent was an attempt to split uh, the Arab nationalist movement okay. because uh, in the early in the 50s, 60s, Arab nationalism, pan-Arab nationalism was very, very pro-Palestinian. Yeah. Many states were were had to act in accordance with that, and so uh, and particularly uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser was yeah. seen as the greatest threat uh, to Israeli. So the idea was to weaken and, and divide yeah. Arab and nationalism. The, the, which is now war. With yeah. the same with the Palestinian nationalism, yeah. yeah. And the 1967 war was really pitted 
is really pitted by Israel as being a defensive war, but it was a preemptive war. No one had attacked them. They they acted preemptively. And even reports afterwards were saying that there were Israeli statesmen who were like, we knew he wasn't going to attack. We knew he didn't have the army. We knew he knew he wouldn't win. Um, and yet that was an attack that they launched preemptively, which is against international law. Yeah. And I mean, for that, you know, uh, one of uh, the places you can go is uh, Norman Finkelstein's yeah. Uh, image and reality of the Israel-Palestine conflict, where he where he documents the conversations that were being had between mm-hmm. Israeli politicians and uh, between Israeli uh, the Israeli government and the Americans, and that sort of bears bears out uh, yeah. that uh, interpretation. Um, so ultimately, uh, then Israel did withdraw from Gaza with this policy, but now, uh, but have, but again, have found that that doesn't result in secure in a secure state. And so what we're seeing after October 7th is really the, uh, this uh, fundamental impulse within the Zionist movement towards establishing an ethnically exclusive state being taken to uh, its ultimate and most dehumanized and most uh, corrupt extreme, yeah. which is uh, of ethnic cleansing and genocide, which is, you know, everything else fails, the, the, the method that you are going to take to establish that majority is by uh, wiping out the minority. Right, right. And, and that yeah. is, that, that, that's what you're seeing right now is a manifestation of that impulse. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've read, but Isaac Totener, we, I, I don't know, maybe I'm pronouncing his name wrong, but in The New Yorker, he published an interview he had with an extremist West Bank settler. And it was really jarring to read because um, she was saying stuff like, of course, uh, we should be here. Of course, this is our land. It doesn't matter. And that we want to move into the Gaza Strip. I want to have people move into there. Um, so the views of, of set, settlers, and even though when we're looking at the they were saying that the kibbutzim are really the best of us. Mm-hmm. Um, but back uh, in history, the kibbutzim were the ones who were like, set- settlements are good. Um, so, so it's interesting that even the left wing and the right wing, it doesn't seem that there is this understanding about settlements among Israeli society. But maybe that's because I don't, I, I don't know enough about the spectrum there. Yeah, so I mean, uh, so initially, I mean, so the idea of settling again was very, very fundamental to mm. this notion of reclaiming the land, you know, uh, in, in the course of uh, absorbing and having to confront all of these anti-Semitic yeah. stereotypes, uh, you know, there is, uh, there is an extent to which you start to take in, uh, in the stereotypes yourselves. And so for Israelis, uh, for Zionists before, the, um, before Israel, um, Zionist movement, in a sense, was trying to challenge those stereotypes because you know they they started absorbing in a sense the idea that oh you know if we are in Europe we're living this sort of parasitical existence right. uh, where we don't have organic ties to the land and so that was a very uh, very fundamental uh, aspect of the movement when they moved to Palestine was to try to establish that relationship with the land directly okay. whether you were an engineer or whether you were a uh, where you're an artist or whatever, mm-hmm. the idea was you have to, of the, and the ideal of the kibbutzim was you, you establish a relationship with land, you farm, you, you do all of that. So, mm-hmm. so that was there uh, as, as an ideal in the early, uh, in the early movement. Um, and it was, I would say, not so religious at that point. It was more, I would, it was more, uh, it was, I, would, I would call it a more of a pseudo-religious sort of ideology in a sense. Right. Um, but then, uh, after the foundation of Israel, uh, and especially after 67, there starts emerging more of what uh, this religious Zionist movement, which, mm-hmm. uh, which is again going against historic uh, positions of religious Israelis, which were more 
uh, which were much more critical of the founding of the State of Israel. The religious Zionist movement is, is an offshoot which emerges and which sees it as a religious duty to settle uh, all of the uh, land of, uh, his, uh, of uh, Israel and so uh, of what they call Israel and so that uh, that is coming again from an, from a much different uh, and uh, much more extreme right wing um, uh, origin than than and then the kibbutzim, right. but but the notion of land settlement is something that has at at more various points in to differing extents been there throughout. Uh, uh, all strands of uh, Zionist thought. Okay, yeah. And one of the things I wanted to ask you is that uh, the the major Israeli kind of sticking point whenever I keep on, and now I think people are making a bit of a circus about having Israelis versus Palestinians shouting at each other on their podcast or shows mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, but one of the main Israeli sticking points is that, oh, Palestinians were offered statehood five times and they refused it. So so it's their fault that they don't have a state now. Um, and that is such a flawed narrative in and of itself. Can you talk to us a bit about how that is? Uh, yeah, no, I've heard this claim and um, I... I mean, it's flawed in so many different ways. So, first of all, I mean, there there, there aren't five instances where Palestinians mm-hmm. were offered a state. Second, uh, then there, then there's offers, and there's you know, uh, being, simply being offered something doesn't mean that it's a serious offer. Right. Uh, third, there's not five instances where Palestinians have rejected a state. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and uh, and fourth, this narrative doesn't really take into account uh, the number of times that Israel has rejected offers for peaceful coexistence yeah. okay. uh, with Palestinians. Mm-hmm. So. Um, my understanding is the, the five instances that people do cite, um, and I'll go through them a little quickly. Uh, so one is the Peel Commission report, which was during yeah. uh, occupied uh, when when uh, Britain was the mandatory authority of yeah. uh, Palestine, uh, and which envisaged the partition of Palestine. Uh, and at that point, the uh, the local Palestinian Arab population rejected that report um, uh, and uh, and uh, carried out a revolt. This was called the Great Arab Revolt of 1936 to 1939 which was suppressed with great um, brutality by the British. So they rejected that and you know, it, was at, it was again uh, a proposal for a partition uh, at a point where there were very, very few Jewish settlers right. in, right. Uh, in uh, Palestine. Uh, but you know, if you can simply compare that, okay, the Arab reaction to this proposal that the British were making was rejected. Um, after the war, uh, after the Arab revolt, the British recalibrated their policy and published what was called the White Paper of 1939, which envisaged having a Jewish national home within a unified state of uh, Palestine. So mm-hmm. you, can call, you could call it like a binational state in a certain sense. Uh, and th- this uh, proposal was accepted and signed off on by the uh, Arab High Committee, uh, okay. which was the Palestinian representation at that time. Um, and it was rejected uh, by the Zionist movement, who uh, at that point then uh, started their own revolt and started carrying out guerrilla warfare against uh, British authorities, mm-hmm. uh, including acts of terrorism such as the bombing of the King David Hotel and, right. uh, and other such instances, assassination of British officials and so on. So, uh, so you know, again, if you're comparing, comparing those two things, you say, okay, well, you could just as easily ask, well, why, why didn't the Zionists accept yeah. that offer? So, I mean, that's the first one. Uh, then, of course, there's the UN partition of Palestine in 1947, um, which I think the best um, deconstruction of just how unjust of a, of a proposal that was, was carried out by uh, Pakistan Foreign Minister Zafrullah Khan in the UN debates on Palestine. And if you look at his speech uh, from then, it's, you know, many people consider it Pakistan's most important contribution to oh, the wow. Palestinian cause, because okay. he breaks down um, 
one by one all of the arguments that are being advanced for why, for why Jewish refugees should go to Palestine, for, for how it's, the policy is deviating from any principle of majority rule, any principle of um, you know, who owns which industry, which industry should be in which state. Um, it, uh, the, it had a, the notion was that, uh, that there should be a permanent UN trusteeship over Jerusalem, which was something which the UN arguably didn't even have any legal uh, right, to, right. Uh, carry, uh, to do. So he really breaks down uh, what happened there, uh, and that's uh, that's a very good source to go to. So uh, the the notion that the Zionist movement has, has consistently been accepting whatever it's been given is is a, is a falsehood. Yeah. Um, what's been true is that and that uh, that Ben Gurion's leadership was very astute, and he was always you know always he would not reject things out of hand. He would continue to see where there were pressure points for uh, for yeah. uh, for obtaining more uh, while while keeping uh, communication lines open but he didn't rely solely on British sympathies or British uh, uh, or, or UN sympathies or, or American sympathies he didn't rely on international opinion he saw the necessity of having a policy of settlement on the ground alongside a diplomatic policy and in these two things may have contradicted each other often but he also he also was wise enough to know that you can't simply rely on international promises if you want to achieve anything yeah. and uh, and so uh, the in, in in point of fact uh, the uh, Zionist movement didn't accept the partition uh, it was very much of a well this is promising but we have all these reservations yeah. about it um, and uh, which is uh, which is very obvious from the su subsequent uh, history of Israel. Otherwise, you know, uh, even after 1967, they haven't even accepted the notion of uh, settling on a state in much more than what was the original yeah. uh, proposed yeah. uh, partition. Um, 1967 is another incident which people cite uh, as having been a case where Palestinians were offered a state, whereas in fact Palestinians were not offered a state in 1967, neither by the Israelis nor by. Uh, nor by the UN. UN uh, Security Council Resolution 242, which calls for the uh, withdrawal of, uh, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of Israel from the territories yeah. occupied in 1967, uh, makes no mention of a Palestinian state mm -hmm. uh, at all. And that was one of the major sticking points uh, for the PLO in accepting that resolution over many years. Right, okay. Um, Israel, of course, also did not accept that resolution. Mm. Um, uh, in, in practice, Israel immediately annexed East Jerusalem, which was part of the territories uh, yeah. occupied, uh, and began its uh, settlement plan according to the Elon plan in the West Bank and so forth. Um, but the 67 is interesting because that's the period after 67 and especially after the 1973 war, where, the, uh, where there's a shift in the Palestinian movement from this focus on having uh, a state over all of Palestine towards the two-state solution. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's over that period that, especially after 1973, uh, Palestinian uh, uh, Yasser Arafat takes uh, a leadership very much behind the scenes of trying to push and cajole the majority of Palestinian opinion into accepting a state. Okay, so that um, was after 1967 that they moved? They started a little bit after 1967, but especially after 1973. Okay. Um, but it was all happening, uh, it was not happening in the official declarations of the Palestine National Council. It was all happening uh, as very much of political maneuvering mm -hmm. uh, behind the scenes because there was, 
they had to confront what would happen if Israel actually did withdraw, and would they be would they be willing to accept a state, or and if they weren't uh, over the occupied territories, and if they weren't, would other Arab states uh, take oh, those right. territories instead? Right. And so that was that was part of the impetus. So it was just pragmatic. It, it was very pragmatic. Um, yeah. After seventy three, Arafat said, you know, he didn't really see. Uh, we would say it much later that he saw that you know the, the military option had had failed. Mm. Um, and but to accept a state in just the West Bank and Gaza was accepting a state in just 22 percent of yeah. historic Palestine. It was a very difficult uh, pill to swallow mm. uh, for the Palestinian national movement. And it took Arafat a good part of uh, 15 years uh, to push and cajole the movement in that direction. Mm. Where eventually, in the in the declaration of the 1988 Palestine National Council. Uh, the PLO accepted UNSC 242 uh, okay. alongside UNSC, uh, alongside UNGA um, 181, which is uh, what uh, the partition of Palestine, mm. um, and, uh, and implicitly and subsequently in press conferences, explicitly recognized uh, the right of uh, Israel to exist. Right. Right. So that happened in uh, 1988, and so there was this whole shift of the Palestinian movement over that 15-year mm. period to taking on to accepting this historic compromise. Yeah. Um, but what, uh, often what's not mentioned in this whole narrative of oh, oh, the PLO rejected a state so many times is, is that uh, Oslo is, not, is something that doesn't come into this. And why, doesn't Oslo, why isn't Oslo mentioned among these instances? Mm -hmm. well, simply because uh, in the Oslo Accords in, uh, between the PLO and Israel, uh, the PLO actually recognized the state of Israel, right of the state of Israel to exist. Uh, but uh, Israel did not recognize a Palestinian state yeah, in Oslo, so yeah. there was no offer of a state made there at all. Uh, all Israel recognized was that uh, the PLO was the representative of the Palestinian people, but any actual substantive discussion about having a state was pushed off uh, to, uh, among final status issues to be negotiated uh, ultimately, um, uh, ultimately by uh, this included a state, the status of refugees, and so on. These were all pushed away, uh, and there was no guarantee uh, about uh, on, on any of these uh, issues. So the first time, actually, that there's there's an actual offer of a Palestinian state from from uh, Israel is in the 2000 Camp David Accords, okay. uh, when uh, which uh, uh, oh, not Accords, the down 2000 Camp David Summit, mm -hmm. um, in which uh, Bill Clinton. Uh, convened with uh, with Yasser Arafat and um, and Ehud Barak, the Israeli Prime Minister, uh, and uh, there's a very good uh, account of what actually happened in those discussions um, by uh, uh, by Hossein Aga and Robert Malley, who tell you a lot about what was happening behind the scenes. But basically, um, Ehud Barak came very much. Uh, it shows you how he came with this preconceived notion of what. Uh, you know, from him, from his perspective, was such a great concession because no Israeli leader had ever even conceded to the principle of a Palestinian state before. Right. Okay. So, so what he offers them is, what, in his mind, such a great thing. Uh, for them, it was already compromising further on a unilateral historic uh, concession that they had made to accepting a, a state in 22% of Palestine. And so, for a while during that conference, there's this whole disconnect where Barack simply is not getting. And is not does not is not interested in negotiating. He's primarily mostly just interested in talking to Clinton and trying to get Clinton to force Arafat to accept uh, terms as is given. Okay. And Arafat uh, Arafat came to the summit actually very reluctantly because he said, you know, the, the groundwork has not been done. We haven't had we haven't had discussions 
Um, our teams have not looked at it. There's, there's very intricate questions of maps uh, being involved both, out, both in the West Bank in general and in terms of which neighborhood in Jerusalem goes where and has what, what authority. So none of the study work has been done. This is, the summit is happening too fast. But Clinton, uh, Clinton is uh, running out of time for his uh, right. re-election, and, and, uh, and, uh, and he, wants, uh, he wants a summit. Um, and uh, Barack also is now facing uh, the rise of Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, and uh, he, he wants to get results. And so they, they push Arafat to go ahead with this and make it clear that you know, if he doesn't accept the summit right now, he will be you know, held responsible for not advancing uh, peace. Uh, and Arafat goes along reluctantly on the basis that, OK, if the summit doesn't work out, there's to be no blame apportioned on either side, which, uh, which ultimately uh, Clinton uh, does not hold to that commitment at all and, hold, and uh, blames Arafat single-handedly right. for the failure of the summit. Okay. Um, even after the summit failed, negotiations did continue uh, between Israeli and Palestinian negotiators afterwards. And, and finally, you know, there was this sort of uh, logjam being broken where they were getting very close to an agreement. But by that point, uh, Ehud Barak loses the election, Benjamin Netanyahu comes to power, and, and that's the end of that. Mm. And that actually speaks to a pattern, um, a broader pattern between Israeli prime ministers, all of those who have been at all interested in some sort of settlement with the Palestinians, uh, and this includes the last case as well, uh, which is which people mentioned, which is uh, of Ehud Olmert. All uh, Israeli prime ministers that have actually tried to come to a settlement with the Palestinians have only done so very much at the last minute, right. after first trying to go it alone okay. uh, and force the Palestinians to accept some uh, settlement, and then realizing at the end, oh no, we can't do this. Mm. But by that point, it's already too late. They're already lame duck, so they've already lost. Uh, they don't have the popular standing to actually push through. So this mm. happened with Yitzhak, uh, in a different form with Yitzhak Rabin, who after Oslo tried to delay any uh, final status issues, ultimately started coming around to it and, and was assassinated by an Israeli settler. Mm. Uh, after Rabin's assassination, there was a huge groundswell of support for, for peace with the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. But his successor, Shimon Perez, instead of taking advantage of that to move immediately to final status, um, started a war in Lebanon, started you know, trying to stake out his own Mm. Uh, authority until his popularity completely collapsed, and uh, then he was not able to uh, negotiate. Uh, Barak, again, uh, I explained to you what just happened. Uh, Ehud Olmert, which is the last time that people say that uh, he, he proposed, he su suggested, uh, made an offer in 2008, also did so after initially trying in the first years of his premiership just to continue with unilateral disengagement plan uh, that Ariel Sharon had instigated. Only much later, after his popularity had uh, fallen to about 3% after his failed uh, uh, war in Lebanon, yeah. did he actually come around to uh, trying to uh, negotiate with the Palestinians. I made a proposal, which, which Olmert himself says that, uh, that Mahmoud Abbas did not reject. Uh, okay. He says that, uh, he, and that you know, he said he needed more time to study it. Uh, and, but uh, but you know, ultimately, that was coming at a point where Olmert had already said he would not run for uh, uh, Israeli leadership again. He was very much on his way up, uh, out of power. And so there was ultimately a question over whether he would be able to negotiate any kind of uh, settlement at all. Uh, and so unfortunately, that's just the, the way in which uh, Israeli offers have happened, is that they yeah. tended to happen at a point when they could not seriously be uh, implemented. Yeah, and, it's, and it must be so jarring to then have your territory, you're under occupation, but at the same time all you can ask for is that territory under occupation, which is 
the Gaza Strip, West Bank and East Jerusalem. I mean, that's what we consider right. occupied territory. That's 22% of your right. nation. And I think one of the one of the issues with international law, even when we're talking about occupied territory, is that we're talking about those three little parcels of land. Right. Um, and some people are like, so for us, I mean, in terms of occupation, it starts from 1967. Mm. But really, the entire territory is occupied right. if you go <laughs> back to 1948. Right. Um, uh, and, and, and so, yeah, Palestinians are saying, look, we've compromised, yeah. we've already accepted yeah, this, so yeah. now just give us this at least. And there are minor swaps that we can do mm. uh, of territory here and there just to deal with population centers, but we can't go much below this. And the other thing we do need is some sort of a just settlement of the refugee problem. Again, we're not saying every single refugee has to go back to Israel and receive Israeli citizenship, but we do need some acknowledgement that this injustice has happened and yeah. that, and some degree of uh, return and resettlement. Or perhaps not even citizenship, but mm. but uh, but you know some acknowledgement of this. These these issues need to be addressed uh, from where they are. Uh, but uh, but the Israeli attitude has been very much to take. Um, 22% as a starting point for uh, for negotiations yeah, and I think yeah. uh, more. I, and I also wanted to ask about the the present day violence. I, mm-hmm. I, I think that we're talking about the history and then and then coming back to what's mm-hmm. happening today and what we're seeing on our um, on our TV screens is uh, day 39 of uh, since October 7th um, and the latest operation operation so is the Vian and the. The intensity of the killing on the on the side of Hamas, also in terms of 1,200 dead in Israel, has never yeah. has not been seen before in recent history. Similarly, the level of carnage, with 11, over 11,000 dead, 4,500 of which are children from the Israeli side. Why do you think Hamas chose to do this now, in terms of October 7th? And also, why do you think that the Israeli response has been uh, has been this this insane? I was I was uh, referring back to operation the previous operations in 2008 and 2014. And the ratio that came to mind was 200 to 1. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, wait, I have to fact check this because that sounds far, far too high. Um, but it was true because there were seven Israelis killed in mm-hmm. 2008 compared to 1,400 mm-hmm. uh, Palestinians. And it's roughly, I think it's then 100 to 1 in, in Operation Protective Edge. So uh, the ratio that I thought was was way too high was actually uh, was actually accurate. So yeah, what do you think the reason is for October 7th and, and yeah. this like huge response? Um, so, I mean, I think the, the more immediate cause has been the continued Israeli settlement and violence against Palestinians, mm-hmm. uh, uh, both in the West Bank and Gaza. And the, in Gaza, it takes the form of this blockade, which has been continuing for over 16 years, um, and uh, in uh, uh, you know, interspersed with multiple Israeli invasions. Um, and uh, but then, in the last year, in particular, there's been a lot of. Uh, there's been a lot of violence against Palestinians in the West Bank, uh, and in, uh, including the desecration of Al-Aqsa and uh, settler violence against Palestinians. Um, the, you know, Hamas called the Operation Al-Aqsa flood because of the repeated uh, attacks on worshippers uh, in Al-Aqsa. Um, so that's one of the immediate uh, causes. Uh, but this operation has been planned, obviously, for a while, because Hamas did not have the, the capabilities to launch this kind of mm. operation back in 2008, which is why you're seeing those yeah. those um, those extreme casualty ratios that you, and that you saw um, back then. Um, another time when there were very extreme casualty ratios of uh, basically several hundred Palestinians to basically almost uh, uh, no Israeli um, were during the pro- and the great uh, the protests uh, which have been 
been carried out mm -hmm. since early 2018 till the end of 2019, yeah. which was started as a civil initiative but then beca became endorsed and supported by Hamas and by Islamic Jihad and by all of the groups in Gaza. Yeah. Uh, these so the, called the Great March of Return, and the idea was for Palestinians, uh, unarmed Palestinians, to just go to the Israel to the offense and to protest, and uh, and they've been and they were doing so, and they would do so weekly mm -hmm. uh, for more than a year and a half, uh, and face Israeli sniper fire. Uh, yeah. Many uh, hundreds of Palestinians were killed over that year and a half yeah. period uh, of. Of. Apparently, they created a generation of amputees because so many people lost their legs. That's right, so because Israeli snipers would yeah. shoot at their legs and so on. And so, so this this method of peaceful protests and trying to get world attention and trying to get push some sh shift in Israeli opinion or world opinion uh, was tried for uh, for a year and a half and achieved almost uh, no. Reaction and no response. Yeah, it frustrates me so much because I think it was Pierce Morgan who was like, where is your Gandhi figure? Where is that mm -hmm. person? And I'm like, but they tried this for a year right. and a half. They were brutally attacked and massacred and yet nobody cared right. when they tried a peaceful protest. Right. And so, so, so you know, that method was then tried as well. And uh, uh, Hamas has then, I think, been developing its capabilities to launch a raid uh, into Israel. Unfortunately, under the circumstances, we don't know exactly what Hamas's aim was, and, yeah. and Hamas officials have not been honest about that. We don't know if the you know, horrific massacres of Israeli civilians that took place as part yeah. of that, uh, that uh, attack were, 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 were deliberate Hamas policy or were, or were, or were a question of uh, them not having control over their fighters. And in either case, it's condemnable and yeah. horrible because yeah. Uh, because given you know, given the sophistication involved in planning that level of an assault, mm -hmm. if, and it's 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 uh, it's, a, it's criminal not to be able to then control your fighters. Yeah. Um, we don't know again if it was Hamas fighters or Islamic Jihad fighters uh, who were involved uh, in that. Um, but uh, so ultimately, we don't have a full answer on that. Um, you know, one hypothesis is that Hamas was looking to lower Israel into. Uh, into fighting in, mm -hmm. in Gaza, uh, where, they, where they were now more prepared uh, to fight them as an army of occupation. And if that was the theory, um, and the Israeli response has been, been very much to not engage uh, its soldiers and not risk any casualties and simply to bomb neighborhoods, level neighborhoods, yeah. and so on uh, instead. Um, the other possibility is that it was primarily aimed as a hostage-taking mission. With, with the idea of negotiating Israeli hostages for the release of uh, you know, thousands of Palestinian yeah. prisoners in Israeli jails and for, the, and for some opening to, uh, uh, of the siege of mm -hmm. uh, Gaza. And that, um, uh, and, then, and that if that was the policy, then, then actually their operation, and they became a victim of their own success because they ended up getting far more hostages than, yeah. than that, that would have yeah. entitled. They ended up staying in Israel much longer than they would have envisioned. Mm -hmm. so, we don't know exactly uh, which of those uh, things is, is the case. Um, and, and I think it was in 2018 that they had held a hostage, Gilad Shumet, who, Gilad Shalit, yeah. Yeah, who then, um, there were about over 1,100 yeah. uh, Palestinians released in, in exchange. Yeah, uh, generally Israeli policy yeah. has been to negotiate for the release of hostages. In fact, uh, has been to value very highly yeah. uh, Israeli Jewish life yeah, uh, in the, these circumstances, and yeah. and so in fact Netanyahu's policy that is being carried out right now is a huge is a complete departure from all Israeli history. Okay, uh, in because that I was seeing. Um
talk about the Hannibal Doctrine, mm -hmm. which is that if they think someone is going to be used as a preempt as a future uh, prisoner swap to preempt that, they will bomb heavily to ensure that they die as well. That, but, but, which goes against uh, what I've heard. Yeah, that's much yeah. more recent. And right. so, okay. uh, so historically, uh, and this is presumably the basis on, especially if Hamas was going for the second, if, that, if what the second idea was what was motivating mm -hmm. them. Uh, that would be what his, Hamas would have been relying on. That you know, Israel right. always negotiates for its hostages, yeah. and yeah. and and the complete uh, you know um, and the fact that the government has not done so at all and has actively endangered the lives mm -hmm. of hostages, uh, even when they've been offered uh, release yeah. of some hostages, yeah. um, <clears throat> suggests that. Yeah, it's, it's something that is uh, unanticipated yeah, in, in it's, uh, Israeli history. It's strange because public opinion um, apparently weighs very, mm. very heavily on the government there and mm. the hostages, whenever they have been taken before or when they have been killed before, they become household names right yeah. immediately. And this time, even though we've seen that, it hasn't. It doesn't seem like they're... I mean, we don't know what's happening behind okay. closed doors. We'll find out later. Yeah. But in terms of the hostages, it doesn't feel... And I think Hamas came out to be like 40 of them have died in the bombings. Right. Um, in terms of the, uh, you asked also about in terms of the yeah. response of the Israelis, <clears throat> and I think so. Since uh, since the founding of the State of Israel, Israeli military doctrine has relied very much on the concept of disproportionate retaliation, mm -hmm. uh, and this is something that has been baked in, um, and has been official uh, military policy that uh, in dealing with the Arab states, if there's you know, if there's a if there's an attack, we have to give a disproportionate retaliation so that they understand. That yeah. and the consequences, and so that uh, as, as a yeah. deterrence measure. Um, so that's always been there. Um, in, after the in, during the Israel Lebanon war in 2006, um, mm -hmm. this was given um, public uh, uh, a, a public face in, in in terms of it was called uh, in, as the Dahia Doctrine. And okay. uh, Dahia was a neighborhood in uh, Lebanon, mm -hmm. <clears throat> which was. Which was uh, uh, completely uh, obliterated uh, by Israeli bombardment, um, and then the and the then chief of army staff uh, of Israel, Gaidi Eisenkot, uh, argued that this would happen in every village from which shots were fired in the direction of Israel. Okay. We will wield disproportionate power against them and cause immense damage and destruction. Mm -hmm. From our perspective, these are military bases. And this isn't a suggestion; it is a plan that has already been authorized. Harming the population is the only means of restraining Nasrallah. So this is the explicit doctrine, right, right. Uh, which has been in place since, uh, as I said, since the founding of the State of Israel, but has, was given this explicit form in 2006. And it's been used in previous Gaza wars mm -hmm. as well. Uh, so the, this escalation targeting civilian infrastructure and targeting civilian targets, yeah. it's, uh, Israel say, claims that they don't do it yeah. uh, when, uh, when pressed. But it's actually it is part of the actual policy. You know, the 2008 Gaza invasion, the the Goldstone report yeah. uh, that was commissioned by the UN later by the respected uh, Jewish South African uh, scholar, uh, stated that the Israelis concluded that the Israeli strategy was designed to punish, humiliate, and terrorize a civilian population. So these are not aberrations of a yeah. policy, but these are the policy itself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was already happening in 2008. Mm -hmm. So now. In response to Hamas rocket fire, which killed not very many Israelis at yeah, all, yeah. so now when in the face of this sort of unprecedented attack by Hamas, 
the doctrines according to the doctrine well if you if you respond as you have before that's not showing uh, you know you have to escalate because yeah. there's been escalation yeah. on the other side and so yeah. how do you escalate from there there's only one direction you can escalate which is in in terms of complete ethnic cleansing or genocide yeah yeah and i think uh, Zippy Livni in 2008 uh, when all of that was happening she was uh, i think she was foreign minister she was saying that we, um, Israel has to prove its deterrent capacity and we do that by, if anyone attacks us, we go wild. And yeah. that's great for our deterrent capacity, uh, capability, and yeah. because it, it shows that any kind of attack on us, we're going to go absolutely crazy yeah. in, in getting, um, responding to it. Which is a very difficult game to play, especially, yeah. especially in that region. And so going to the region and also to the international community's reaction to it, um, where do you see as the international community's role? And, and I think it, it's more illuminating to me to ask that question now after, after you've gone through the history of um, you know, US involvement particularly and, and the Arab revolt in 1967. So how do you think that the international community can push them towards the resolution we just saw? an entirely pointless meeting by the Arab League and the OIC and also the US continuing to call a veto a ceasefire and then say we're very concerned about civilian deaths. All right. Um, you know, I, was, I was recently uh, reading an article uh, that Iqbal Ahmed, uh, Pakistani intellectual, uh, wrote uh, during the uh, genocide in Bosnia. And it starts off with the words, uh, war in Bosnia has begun at last. Mm. It is a development humanists should welcome. Um, okay. Because there's all been this talk about the need to prevent a wider war and that, that it's important to prevent uh, this escalating into a regional war and so on. But uh, I would argue that a wider war is better than a genocide. So, okay. uh, and, there's, and it's, it's very clear um, since the genocides in Rwanda, in Yugoslavia, mm -hmm. it's very clear what the UN's role should be in this, what the international community's uh, role should be uh, under the responsibility to protect R2P doctrine, uh, which is that you use all peaceful means available to prevent a genocide, yeah. and that uh, if peaceful means are not working, then, uh, then you use coercive means uh, with, uh, with UN Security mm -hmm. Council backing. So, so there is a clear responsibility about the international community to intervene by force if necessary. Right. Um, Obviously, they're not going to get UN Security Council backing for that because of uh, the U.S. veto. Uh, but that raises the question of, uh, you know, what is, uh, and even if you can't get it uh, authorized by the UN, what is the moral responsibility on each state, on each people? How can they help? Uh, you know, in, in Bosnia, uh, Iqbal Ahmed pointed out how there was this UN arms embargo, which, uh, which had uh, basically affected uh, disproportionately had only affected the Bosnians because they didn't have any weapons and, were, and because the Serbs were already receiving weapons yeah. from Russia. Uh, and and you know, many people then skirted around that, uh, state, state people in states skirted around that armbow by smuggling weapons there so that the, the Bosnians would at least have the ability to fight back if nothing else. Uh, if nothing else. Now, and, and that obviously is an ability that any occupied people, any people under war do have the, the right, they don't have the right to kill civilians, yeah. but they have the right to defend to themselves, resist. and that's something that in UN General Assembly Resolution 45130 uh, provides for the right of occupied people to resist. Anyway, and you know, then therefore there have been arguments that you know, Gaza is not occupied because Israel has withdrawn its forces. I mean, uh, Israel yeah. still controls all the coastlines, still yeah. controls all of, uh, and, it's, and it's occupied right now. And even, uh, but even, even in the last 16 years, it's, yeah. you know, 
you can, if you're claiming that it's not occupied, it's still under siege, it's still under blockade. So yeah. you can either say that Israel is, is waging a war on Gaza, or you can say that Israel is occupying Gaza. You can't say that neither of those things is happening during this period. Yeah. So, so that right of resistance is there, mm-hmm. um, from a, even from just a legal perspective, uh, and certainly there from a moral perspective. What individual states can do, um, you know, if there's certainly a lot more, and, and that's, I would say, you know, so the right to actually intervene militarily is there. Mm. Uh, short of that, there are many other things that could be done which are not being done. Um, for example, there have been attacks on UN facilities. No single UN facility has been. Uh, just recently, the UN had its, all its flags at uh, a half-mast for more than 100 UN employees who have been killed in Gaza. Now, th- this is a symbol of the international community that is being, uh, yeah. being targeted there. So at the very least, the UN can defend its own. UN, uh, the states should be able to pass resolutions defending themselves. Now, obviously, resolutions themselves are not going to achieve anything unless they're accompanied by active pressure. If that pressure is not... Uh, and one form that pressure can take is the danger of escalation to wider war, which is, it is very clear that neither Israel nor the US wants. Mm-hmm. They're only going this far as they can because they feel that they can manage that risk. Um, so that is one form of cost that can be imposed. There are other f- forms of cost that can be carried out. So I mean, you have the uh, you talked about the Arab League. I mean, if Israel actually feared that other than Gaza, that would face a, a threat on multiple fronts on the uh, on the Jordanian front, on the Syrian front, uh, you know, the only group that is actually st- still tying down Israeli forces is Hezbollah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but it, but you know, on the West Bank, if it feared that it would be treading more carefully. Mm. Um, it's only because these states are not making any credible threats at all yeah. uh, that it is taking this. Then, short of making credible threats, they're not even making, making clear that there's any consequences to Israel or ultimately to the US in terms of, uh, in, in terms of even non-cooperation with, any, uh, with, uh, with, their, with their policies in the region or uh, or uh, you know, there's, there's, or even allowing protests to happen uh, in 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 much larger, uh, in a in a much larger sense that they have, and then they have been doing. So there's a lot of uh, things that can be done to to create more costs. Mm-hmm. Um, Bolivia has severed diplomatic relations yeah. with Israel. Many, uh, any of these Arab countries could do the same. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, many countries have recalled their ambassadors. You know, if there are these sort of diplomatic costs being paid. Mm-hmm. It starts to weigh at Israeli calculations. Yeah. Um, if the if the PA Palestinian Authority is instead of co- continuing its coordination with Israeli security forces, so gives a free hand to Palestinians in the West Bank to protest. If there are mass protests in the West Bank accompanying what is happening here, yes, a lot of people Israelis will react. Uh, Israel will react violently. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people will be killed even if they are unarmed protests. But that that increases uh, the costs to Israel of continuing the action in yeah. Gaza. Um, mm. There are, uh, as far as the U.S. is concerned, there are uh, electoral costs to be borne. Um, uh, Biden is beginning to face; uh, he has fa- uh, the complete support, uh, collapse of support uh, of uh, Arab and Muslim Americans, uh, which could be uh, electorally crucial for him next year in places like Michigan. Yeah. So, uh, more organization by uh, by that community, mm. by the uh, uh, by uh, pro-Palestinian supporters in the U.S. To make clear that there is that there are electoral costs to be borne, and I'm, and I'm not saying that. And the people are saying, and you know, there's always this democratic argument that, oh, you know, well, we're at least, well, you know, we, if if you don't uh, support us, you'll get Trump. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm not saying he, Trump would be any better, but the point is that if you are not going to be able to show that your votes and that your electoral support exactly. is 
is dependent on policies that are being carried out, uh, those votes and electoral support are ultimately meaningless. Yeah. Um, and if you're not going to do it in a situation which uh, all concerned UN special rapporteurs have been warning since day one of the Israeli bombardment poses an impending risk of genocide. Mm -hmm. If you're not doing it in that situation, then when, yeah. are, when are you going to do yeah. it? So, and, and, and Biden, of course, is just one aspect of that. You know, if, if, uh, if uh, Muslim Arab, uh, Americans abstain or uh, vote third party, uh, his electoral chances are imperiled. But there's all, all of these other, uh, uh, all of these other politicians in Congress, in the Senate, you don't act just, oh, you know, can you one, it's a binary of presidents, but there's also all of these uh, people in Congress uh, who are there, who are supporting the Israeli policy, and those people should be facing primary challenges. Mm -hmm. And it, again, it doesn't really matter at this point whether, it is, uh, whether, whether you're going to get a pro-Palestinian person in their place. What should be demonstrated is that Regardless of who is coming in their place, a policy of support for genocide is a policy for electoral uh, oblivion for that uh, politician in question. Yeah. People should take a leaf out of APAC's book. People should take a leaf out of Israel's book. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason APAC has become such a powerful lobby in, uh, in the United States, and there's many reasons, but one of the reasons is that they, don't, that they have a much more sophisticated understanding of what needs to be done on a constituency by constituency level to influence policy and that they are not afraid to punish. They're not going to say, oh, well, you know, what if, well, this guy was mildly in favor of Israel, so if we get rid of him, maybe the next person will be more anti-Israel, and so right. we shouldn't do anything. Right, right. They'll, they'll do a purity test. They'll say, this person did not yeah. uh, act in Israel's policy here, so we are going to primary against him, whether or not we can mm -hmm. uh, get, uh, no matter what that happens, they should re recognize that there are costs. So that kind of policy, uh, and this is a policy that you know, should have begun decades ago, but it needs to, you, know, you have to start at any point. And it's a long-term policy, but you have to, you just have to go and you have to sustain it. So that's something that, uh, that uh, Palestinian supporters in the US can do, uh, can make uh, much more clear how vitally important this issue uh, is for their support. Yeah. Um, and that's and yet, yet again down. another lever that yeah. can be pushed to... Completely. I completely agree with you. And I think it's astounding how strong that Israeli lobby has been and how weak the Arab lobby has been in comparison. And I think the question is, if not now, then when? <laughs> Are you going to get, get your act together and do something about this? Um, but on that note, thank you so much. This is such an interesting discussion. Um, and I learned so much from you about the history of the conflict. And, and I think your points on the last... Uh, Wish you were really going to stay with me and I'm going to think about them a lot. <laughs> so thank, thank you, you so much. Me. And I hope you enjoyed watching me at home.